It is 11.52 in the morning here on, uh, actually it's 11.51 in the morning here on uh, Thursday, October 20th, 2016. I'm Kevin Williams. Uh, this is the LDS Life Podcast, podcasting to you from my Kevin Cave in West Jordan, Utah. Um, and uh, I must apologize, folks. I haven't had a podcast up in a while because I've had a lot of technical issues. I used to use a software called CallBurner to record my Skype calls, and then that uh, decided not to work. Whenever I'd record a podcast, it would sound like the ocean. Well, nobody wants to hear the ocean on a podcast. They want to hear me and whoever I'm talking to. So uh, now that I have things up and running, uh, everything is going to be just fine. And we had a little drama getting this started this morning, but everything's working now. I have Nathan Ogden with me. How are you? I'm really good. Good to be on here. Oh, good. Yeah, glad to have you on. And uh, you've got quite a story that uh, I want to get into. First of all, I know you're. Uh, I knew you back in uh, 1998 is when we met. I was uh, trying to remember when it was last night, and it was 1998. You were the what was your title? You were the priest quorum advisor, weren't you? Yes, I believe I was. Yeah. I and a mission in 96, got married in 97, and we were, uh, yeah, my wife and I were living in the ward there for a little bit. Yeah, and uh, some good times. Um, we didn't interact much, but I always uh, was pretty fond of you, and I heard your name when I was a kid, because you went to high school with my brother. So, uh, anyway, uh, I did know your brother Devin, however, and... Uh, you said that you didn't remember much about me, but apparently uh, Devin did. Uh, what does he remember about me? Uh, first of all, I do remember a little bit about you, but oh. uh, like not that much. But I do remember who you are, and I remember seeing you and being around you. Okay. But, uh, yeah, Devin, Devin spent more time with you. Uh, he said that he remembers doing different activities with you, from water skiing to... Uh, going camping and hiking, and that uh, you were very outgoing. And for being someone who was not able to see, you were uh, extremely brave and willing to try anything. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's always been my uh, personality. And uh, your brother had a good taste of music back then. I, I'm sure he still does now. Um, but uh, what's what's he up to these days? He is in commercial real estate here in the Boise area and is, uh, has four kids, happily married, and just uh, trying to keep up with life like the rest of us. Well, that's good. That's, uh, that's very good. Well, so uh, we're going to start this podcast here. Uh, tell us a little bit about you growing up because um, you had a pretty good childhood, I I know, and uh, tell us a little about that, what sports you were involved in, and things like that. Um, well, I grew up in the Boise area. I was very active in anything from scouts and school to church, and I, I love sports. I did a lot of soccer. I um, played since I was probably five until uh, my first year in college I played. Then uh, I also did tennis and wrestling, played basketball. Um, I always wanted to do football, but my dad wouldn't let me. He was a doctor and said he'd seen too many injuries. And 
So we were not allowed to do that. But I love the outdoors. I love to go hunting and fishing and camping. And so I was always very active and out doing anything I could. Yeah, well, uh, my mom had the same issue. She wouldn't let my brother play football, and I kind of felt bad for him because he wanted to play. Although people told me that if I could see, I would have made a better football player than him. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I was told. Um, I think because I was heavier than my brother, always have been, as far as, uh, you know, he would weigh less than me at times or whatever. But uh, anyway, I did a lot of, I did some sports as well. I did uh, cross country. I did uh, track along with wrestling. My favorite was track, though, and I did enjoy cross country. And speaking of cross country, I understand your son has a cross country meet uh, this, I guess, tomorrow. Yes, he's a sophomore at Mountain View High School, and it's districts, and this is their uh, big race to see who gets to go to state. So. Yeah, well, we wish him luck. Is uh, is Mountain View doing pretty well? Mountain View has a very good team. He's a uh, he's one of the top runners on the JV team, and so he's um, just trying to trying to compete, trying to do the best that he can. Oh, uh, real quick, before we get into the podcast, I do remember, I don't know if Devin went with us or not. We went cliff jumping. Now, uh, people asked how I can cliff jump. Well, I didn't. Uh, we'll get into this later in the podcast, too. Um, I jumped off 10-foot cliff, so I never really felt like I had the adrenaline rush. Uh, like, I'm sure Devin and others jumped off 30, 40-feet cliffs. And the reason for that is I had a fear of high water. In fact, uh, let's get into that. Let's get into the podcast. We'll talk about fears here. Uh, so you had a pretty traumatic experience. You were skiing at, uh, what was it, Mount Bachelor in Bend, Oregon? Correct. We were there uh, for spring break. Or spring break. We were there for winter break. Just took a week off of work. I was done with uh, college. We had two young children, a little two-and-a-half-year-old girl and a one-year-old boy. And my in-laws are from the Bend area, and so we went there for Christmas. And I went up uh, skiing with my brother-in-law, who was, uh, I don't know, was probably six, seven years younger than me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and uh, this happened uh, December 22nd, 2001. Uh, Tell us what happened and how you felt afterwards, because I'm sure that it was a pretty humiliating experience for you. Um, yes, it actually was pretty humiliating. I, we were up skiing. I, I grew up skiing at the uh, Bogus and Sun Valley and McCall. And, uh, so I could ski fine. I, I wasn't going to the Olympics, but I could sure make it down a black diamond run. And we were going down one more run and we came around this corner and there were a couple of big jumps that people were going off of and we hadn't seen them before and I decided that I wanted to try it so my brother-in-law he skied down with a group of people who were watching others come off this last jump and I waited in line with a few people to go take our turn and as I started skiing down the hill I'd seen that people as they were coming up to that last jump, they were kind of veering off to the right and just hitting the corner of the jump. And I didn't understand why they were doing that. And as I got closer to the jump to go off of it, I thought, you know what? 
I'm going to go off the middle of this thing. I'm going to, I'm going to show everyone. I'm going to get some air. I'm going to get high. This is going to be so much fun. And I uh, probably let my confidence turn into cockiness as I got closer and closer and I sped up and I hit the middle of that jump. And as my skis left, I immediately knew something was wrong because I didn't shoot kind of out off of the jump. It shot me more up, almost directly up. And those who were watching said that I got 30 feet in the air. Oh my gosh. Which is much, much higher than I've ever been and ever want to be. Oh yeah. Slowly rotated backwards and I came down and landed on my neck and my body just kind of collapsed like an accordion on top of me. And uh, my skis and poles and even gloves all flew off as I tumbled and I came to a rest, a rest facing downhill in kind of a fetal position. And my initial thought as I laid there was, oh man, I look like such an idiot. I just blew this right in front of everybody. So I tried to get up really quick. And all I could do is move my left arm a little bit. I lifted it in the air and then it fell back to the cold snow. Thought, it's okay, I just knocked the wind out of myself. I'll be all right. So I tried to lift my arm up again and it got about half as high and then fell back to the snow again. And right then I felt this burning pain throughout my body and it was getting a little bit harder for me to take a breath. And I kept looking down at my legs and trying to move them. I'm like, come on, let's go. I got to get up. But they wouldn't budge. And I couldn't figure out why. And I didn't know what was going on, what had happened. I didn't know how to fix it. And right then, my brother-in-law came running up to me. And I just said that, uh, I think we're going to be a little late for dinner tonight. Yeah, and uh, to make... <laughs> To make things worse, uh, this happened over Christmas. So you were in the hospital uh, Christmas. Nobody wants to be in the hospital on Christmas Day. You certainly had every intention of being with your family, not uh, in the hospital. And you, the problem is when you're jumping in the air, like, well, I guess you went off the ski jump, though. But when you're in the air 30 feet, at least it's been my experience, I've jumped off a 30-foot-high platform into the water. Your body kind of jerks around. Kind of makes me wonder how these Olympic divers do it. I'm sure that your body was jerking around a lot and you were trying to keep straight up. Uh, I'm sure I probably was. I don't remember that as much. I just remember more of looking down at the group of people that were watching me. I remember seeing them. I remember thinking, man, I am, I'm really high in the air, and this is going to hurt really bad when I land. Oh, yeah. I'll bet a lot of... So, uh, so you're in the hospital, and uh, you actually recovered uh, your first time. Then 13 months later, you fell off of an x-ray table, and that's really when all hell broke loose for you. Yes, actually, for that that first neck break, it, I never lost faith that I would walk again. I was a pretty competitive person, 
I had no doubt, even when the doctor said that I would never walk again, the odds were very slim. I All I heard was that there's a possibility that I can walk again. And so I knew that I would. My wife was very much on the same page. And so that next year, we worked very hard in therapies, a um, lot of ups and downs, but I got back full use of my arms and shoulders and uh, most of my hands, and they were still coming back fully, and I could even move my legs a tiny bit. But it had been a year, and you can, they tell you, you got about the first year or two after a severe spinal cord injury to get back much of the movement that you will. And so I was still progressing. I was still moving along, and so I had hoped that I would walk. Actually, there was more hope. I knew that I would walk. And then because I got pneumonia and I went unconscious in my sleep 13 months after that first neck break, you're correct. I, they took me into the ER to get x-rays in my lungs while I'm still unconscious. And I was dropped off the x-ray table and they broke my neck again. This time a little higher up. And after that neck break, I lost the use of my hands, the use of my triceps, and anything from the chest down. And like you said, I guess all hell broke loose to the point that I still thought that I would walk again. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I've done this before. I can do it again. I can do it faster. I'll be all right. But as I did therapies over the next few months, none of that movement came back. And even to this day, I don't, I can't move my fingers. I can't move my legs. And that was hard on me because now I wasn't just physically paralyzed. I became mentally paralyzed. I became frozen because my progress had halted. And that was hard for me to grasp, to accept that I will never walk again. That all these things that I have wanted to do in my life, all these dreams that I wanted to accomplish on two legs weren't going to happen. Yeah, so when did it hit you that uh, you were officially paralyzed? Oh, by the way, I want to back up the uh, pneumonia. You caught pneumonia because your immune system is weaker uh, when you're paralyzed. And in your case, you were sitting a lot because you couldn't, you were walking okay, but not the greatest probably after 13 months or, uh, you know, after your incident there, 13 months after. And it weakens your immune system because of your diaphragm is not as strong as it once was, and your lungs are not as strong as they once were, and they collect all the mucus. Am I correct? Yeah, that's correct. So I just, I don't move around as much as everyone else. I'm not standing and stretching, and so my lungs and my diaphragm are weaker than they originally are, and so I'm more susceptible. If I get a cold, I'm more susceptible for that cold to turn into pneumonia. And then that's very difficult to get rid of the pneumonia because I'm not able to get up and expand my lungs the way uh, the average person can. Yeah, so I guess what? It hit you that you were paralyzed, what, about two or three months after your second incident? Yes, I think it was somewhere in there. And I, 
I don't think I had like one day of uh, like a big revelation that all of a sudden I'm not going to walk. I think it slowly kind of settled in mm-hmm. over a period of a few weeks. And then I started to slip into a depression that I, I didn't realize I was doing. I think my wife started to notice it. But it, it got a lot more severe over the next few years that I went into this slump that I couldn't seem to get out of. Even though I was still living life, I was still going, I was still the coach of my kid's soccer team in a wheelchair. I was still going to concerts. I was still going with the family and doing things, but I, I was not progressing. I, I was in a slump that I couldn't seem to, to be happy and to get out of. Yeah, uh, tell us about uh, you used to go into your office because you want you were trying to get a business going and you wanted to be a motivational speaker, and so you may, you had an office in your home and you would just go there to your office and try to get things done. But according to your book, a few hours would go by and nothing would happen. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it got very frustrating, and I think anyone who's dealt with kind of depression. Um, in any way, you felt this type of experience where I would I would go into the office in the morning all excited and pumped to get so many things done. And then I realized five, six hours later, my wife would come in and ask me what I'd finished or what I'd accomplished. And I hadn't done hardly anything. It's like I would slowly get something finished but it would take me forever or for whatever reason I would just kind of zone out and I I really struggled with it and I think I lost a lot of confidence in myself wondering why even though I wanted to be a motivational speaker I kept thinking well why would anyone want to listen to me anyway what important things do I have to say and so that hurts your your personality it hurts the way that you believe in yourself and it's those type of things is what we tell ourselves it's not what others say that really hurts us it's what we what we say to ourselves is what drags us down so much so what got you out of this uh, out of the uh, depression then do you think i think part of it was a change in medication mm-hmm. um I was on a certain medication for pain that also had a side effect of um, almost like an antidepressant where it would just make me even kill. I was always just kind of blah. I was never really happy. I was never sad. I was just there. And I finally decided that if this will help me to, to be who I am, then I would rather have more pain and live with that than to have less pain and not be living. My family needed a dad who was engaged, who enjoyed life and who was involved in everything. So I, I gave up that medication and my pain did go up, but my quality of life also went up dramatically. Interesting. Now, uh, you also said in your book that uh, you used to have people look up phone numbers for you and uh, other things. 
Now, a couple things I'd like to know here. Number one, how did you, because you said that uh, you'd call your sister-in-law uh, or have you'd call up somebody or have someone look up phone numbers for you, and then eventually you started doing it on your own. So how would uh, you, as a quadriplegic, pick up a phone book? Now, of course, I know phone books are not as common today, but most of us know what a phone book is. Uh, how did you learn how to pick up a phone book and what made you start looking up phone numbers on your own and things like that? Yes, thank heavens phone books aren't around as much anymore because it makes it a lot easier on me just to type into my phone. Um, when you can't move your, your fingers um, and you don't have a lot of strength in your arms, phone books can be very difficult because they're heavy. They're big and heavy. And oh yes, especially so in Boise. Yeah, I used to I used to be pretty lazy because for me to to flip through a phone book and to turn pages could it could take me a long time, um, and that may sound kind of trivial, but it was big for me when when my health was terrible and I'm trying to learn how to do all these new new activities. It was a challenge, and yes, it was, as bad as it was, there was times I would have a phone book right in front of me, and it would be easier for me to just call. Somebody, I, I remember a few times it was my sister-in-law and say, hey, can you look up a phone number for whatever business? I need to call them. And she would look it up for me and give me the number. And to me, that was justified because I thought it's okay. I'm a quadriplegic and people should do things for me. And that was wrong, but I did it anyway. And it wasn't until... A little bit later, you, with all of us, you get put into a certain situation where you don't have a choice, and so you have to decide whether you're going to give up or you're going to accomplish what you set out to do. And I needed a number, and I couldn't get a hold of anyone, so I went to the drawer, and the phone book is sitting in the drawer, and now I've got to figure out how do I get this out of there. And it's probably hard for everyone to picture this, but it's, if you were to try and pick up a phone book, don't use your hands, or at least don't move your fingers. And so I would have to reach in there and kind of force one of my hands under the phone book, and then I'd pinch it with my other hand, and I'd have to kind of lift it out. And when I got it just far enough, I'd try and throw it onto my lap because it was too heavy for me to lift. And then hopefully it would land on my lap and not fall off. Because there were times that it would fall off and then then I'm out of luck because there's no way I'm getting it off the ground. So I would get it on my lap, I would get to a table where I could lift it up onto the table and then I could flip through. And it would take me a while. It, that, that task of going from when I left to go to the drawer to find a phone book, to pick it up, get it on my lap, and back to the table, and then find a phone number, literally could take me 30 to 40 minutes. Wow. Yeah, that's something a lot of us take for granted. That's, uh, yeah, I could understand why you wanted to ask people to get phone numbers for you. Uh, but then, yes, uh, there's that moment where your sister-in-law probably was not around or your wife was off doing something, so you had to decide, yes, uh, am I going to look this phone number up 
On my own. You know, I kind of had an experience like that myself. Uh, I used to have... One of the reasons I only jumped off a 10-foot cliff when I went cliff diving is because I had this fear of high water. I don't know if the uh, people I was with at the time, uh, Scott and Daryl, the uh, Scoutmasters, knew that I had a fear of high water. I think they sensed something was going on because they knew me for a while before this trip to McCall, Idaho. And so what they did is they uh, bought a wetsuit with them that I could swim in because apparently the wetsuit holds you up. It's not a life jacket, but it does a fairly good job at holding you up anyway. And they also got me a raft. Uh, but one day, uh, when I was 18 years old, back in, uh, in fact, I remember the exact date, uh, June, 18, uh, June, uh, June 3rd, 1998, I went to Snowbird with my mom and sister. We were staying up there for the week. And... Uh, I told my mom I wanted to go swimming, so my mom and sister dropped me off at the pool, and it was a big deal because I was 18, so I got to go to the adult pool, which was a big deal back then. For those of you that have been to the Iron Blossom, Blo Iron Blossom Lodge in Snowbird, and I was dumb enough to swim out into the deep end, and then I thought, uh-oh, uh, my fear of high water came back to me, and I thought, how am I going to swim back here? because I didn't have a wall to hang on to. I was right in the middle of the pool, and uh, I had to make an instant choice. Am I going to just float on my back and feel dumb and just hope I get back there? I decided to swim back, and guess what? My fear of high water went away at that point. What a concept. That sounds something like similar to what you were facing there. Now, when you say high water, just for everyone listening, you're meaning anything over your head? Yes. Okay. I'm just making sure I understood that. Oh, everyone... yeah. Yeah, I but probably I... should have been more clear. So, uh, yeah, I think that's very similar to me. You, you were put in a position where no one was there to help you. Yep. So what do you do? Yep. You either are going to drown or... If you want to live, then you better figure out a way to make it happen. Yep. And I think we all get put in positions like that in our life. Yep. We're all, we all, whether we have people around us to help us or not, we may get put in a position that we have to make a choice. And that choice is very key to what happens in the rest of your life and what will make, what will make a difference for the next choice you make. And... I've had to make that choice many times throughout these both neck breaks and many other instances that have happened in my life since then. And I've made the right choice many times and I can look back and realize that there are instances that I made the wrong choice and I should have been stronger. But that's okay. That's how we learn and that's how we get stronger and better. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, you also talked in your book about uh, some of the things that you've done. Uh, speaking of overcoming fears, you went uh, skiing, you went uh, rappelling, you've been swimming. Uh, let's talk about your triathlon that you did, because that's pretty amazing. Uh, it started out, I guess, in an indirect way of a tricycle. You were pretty depressed and felt like you couldn't live life. 
And so your wife bought you this, uh, I guess it was a handmade bicycle, and I've actually seen these before, where you pedal with your hand instead of your feet. And you decided to take it out a few times, then you got tired of it. But I, I know that you felt accomplished because you actually got to do something, and then you, it sounded like in your book you kind of slumped back into your depression. So your wife and a neighbor came up with this idea to do a triathlon, and you use that tricycle. Go ahead and elaborate on that. Yeah, we got the, we got this bike so that uh, I could go on bike rides with the family because my our kids were getting old enough that they were riding bikes and. They wanted to go around the block together as activities, and I couldn't because I didn't have anything to do with them. So we got this bike, we had it made, and I rode it, and I, I loved it, but I didn't do it that much because I came up with excuses, like it's too hard, it hurts too much, it's, it's far too much effort for people to help get me in and out and strap me. And so I didn't do it very often. And I kind of lost confidence in myself and that excitement that originally was there. So yeah, my, a good friend of mine, John Ashby, and my wife came to me and they wanted me to do a half a triathlon, which means I would have to swim for a mile and a quarter. I'd have to bike. Well, this is, I was doing the sprint version, so it's a little bit shorter in some of the aspects. But I'd have to bike for 12 miles and then run for three miles. But we were just gonna combine the running and biking, so it'd be 15 miles of biking. And as they were telling me that, I, in my mind, I remember vividly thinking, no. I mean, this race is in two months, I couldn't be prepared. And you know what? It's not gonna be that fun. I don't wanna do it. But as they finished and they asked me whether I'd do it, I, for some reason I said yes. That I, I need to push myself. I need to try something more. And it was an amazing experience. It was a very, very difficult experience, but it was so amazing. As my brother um, came and he went with me throughout most of the whole triathlon to support me, I can't sweat because of my paralysis. So my temperature, my core temperature can raise dramatically in a very short period of time. So it's 100 degrees outside and I'm trying to bike on these hot roads. So my temperature is skyrocketing. So they have to keep coming by with cars and dumping cold water on top of me to keep me cold. And I got so tired throughout the whole race and it came down to the last three miles and the race was going to close in 30 minutes. They have to end it at a certain time. And if you're not done, you're just not done. And there was no way I could finish in three, in 30 minutes, these last three miles. I was dead. I was so tired from biking. I was in pain. I couldn't see well. I couldn't breathe well. I was having terrible spasms. But I decided to push it. And I pushed it for two reasons. One is because I knew I had to do this for myself. But two, I was doing it because of my support system. Not just my support system, but my superior support system. My family, my friends, and all those who have been there for me. 
and I took off and without telling anyone, I just started pedaling my bike with my arms. The muscles were so tired. They were dead and weak. And for whatever was built up inside of me, I finished three miles in 29 minutes. And I came across the finish line right before they closed the race. So not only did I get a medal and everyone was cheering for me because I finished the race, but because I was the last person, I also got this big trophy and it has a chicken on it, the chicken trophy. And they give it to the last person to come across the finish line. Oh. I was pretty excited because everyone, everyone who finished got a medal. That's, you know, yep. what's different about that? But I got the, the trophy too. Yeah. So next time I do a race, I'm going to try and come in last. Yeah, and uh, do you think that you'll ever do another triathlon again? I think I will. I've actually been speaking with the guy who wants to do it with me this next summer. Oh, I think you should. If He's you a professional cyclist in Brazil, or actually no, in Chile. Oh my gosh, how did you hook up with him? I just met him a couple months ago at a family gathering. Oh. And he heard my story and he wants to uh, he wants to do the half the triathlon the way I do it. So say I swim and all I can do is move my arms. He wants to tie his legs together and do the backstroke the whole way because that's all I can do. And he wants to get a bike like mine and pedal it with his arms the whole way because that's what I have to do. And I think that may be a really fun experience, a neat story, not just for me, but for him and to see what that's like. Next time you see him, you should ask him if he eats a lot of linguiça. I'll have to ask him. That's a uh, Brazilian sausage. Really, really good. Anyway, um, in fact, if you go to Two Canos or some of these Brazilian places, they have a lot of linguiça. But anyway, uh, I, yeah, I think you should do the uh, triathlon if you can. That would be a pretty good experience. Maybe you can uh, finish in. Uh, perhaps if you do a little preparation, you can finish in maybe second to last or something like that. Um, and I'm sure that uh, when you were doing the triathlon, you wanted to send a message to your kids and all that uh, you could do anything. So I'm sure that that motivated you to press on and finish in 29 minutes uh, instead of backing out of the race. Yes. And uh, it, was a, it was a great experience for my kids to be a part of that. The last three miles of that race, my older brother didn't follow me. So I was by myself uh -huh. and I talk about this in my book on frozen, but my, at that time, I think he was 11 year old son caught up to me and he started running beside me and I was completely exhausted. And I turned to him and said, Hey, what are you doing, buddy? You know, this is, you've never run three miles before. You know, you can just go back. Don't worry about it. And he said stuff that just changed my life as he looked over at me as jogging next to me and said, Dad, you don't have to do this alone. I yeah. want to do this with you, and I, I know that we can do it together, 
and we can finish. And then I knew that gave me the extra push, that extra motivation to give it all that I had because I now I had extra support. I had someone there by my side and we all need that in life because we're all going to fall, we're all going to trip. So you need to have a superior support system there to lift you up. You need to have key people that will grab onto you and drag you if necessary through those tough times when it's so hard to do it on your own. Yeah, uh, what your son said. You can't argue with that, can you? No, you can't. You just suck it up and go. Yep. Yeah, uh, that that's actually a very profound statement. Uh, now, you've also done some other things. Uh, how do you, as uh, I know you've done skiing and repelling, uh, let's talk about your repelling experience, and we'll talk about skiing. How did you do repelling as someone who's a quadriplegic? Now, this was uh, in St. George or somewhere around there, wasn't it? Correct. We were down in St. George, um, I think it was back in the end of March. Um, and we brought my whole family. We were actually living in Virginia at the time, but we flew back to do this with uh, Stephen Palmer, who's a, a great author down there, and he he's also a big climber. So him and his buddies invited me to come try this, and I I'd never been repelling like that before, even when I could walk. So my family came with me, and all of us were able to rappel off a 150-foot cliff. That's like 18 stories tall. Yeah. And it was an amazing experience. And they, I had to be tied on to Stephen. So we had to go together because I was not able to hold on to a rope and push myself off of the cliff. Otherwise, I would have just been kind of dragging all the way down the cliff, and it it could have scraped me up pretty bad. So him and I were together tied on and he would push us off the cliff as we went down. Uh-huh. Well, that's, uh, that's really neat. And, uh, you obviously made it down cause you're here. I made it down. Yes. It's a lot easier going down than up. Yeah. Now you also said, uh, that your rope was, uh, crunching or something and, Somebody forgot to, I guess someone at top belaying you, I guess, must have lost their grip or something, so you dropped about a foot, but uh, you obviously recovered, which is good. Yeah, I really wasn't that scared of the whole experience. Uh-huh. Uh, I guess I'm not that scared of death anymore because I've been there a couple times. Oh, well. Yeah, but you also went skiing. Now, how do you go skiing as a quadriplegic, and where did you go skiing at? I was skiing in Park City, Utah. We were down in Utah doing some therapy for a couple of years. And they have a great program up around the Park City area for people with all different types of disabilities. So you're sitting on a, it's kind of like a big bucket that they've created that kind of forms into your body, which has two skis um, hooked on underneath it. And then you have, for at least for someone like me, you have two poles, very short poles that are then strapped onto your arms that so you can reach out. And the end of these poles have little skis on them as well. And I was not good enough to do it myself. So I had a 
an assistant who was behind me, who would ski behind me, holding onto a rope that was then tied onto the back of my skis. So he could slow me down if needed or keep me from running into a person or a tree. Now, I have to ask you, when you went skiing, I, I guess, let's back up, you went down to Utah for therapy. Was that physical therapy or was that uh, other kind of therapy? Yeah, it was more of a physical therapy. Okay. And so, to... oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Just, oh. just therapy to get stronger. Um, yeah, okay. So I have to ask, though, when you went skiing, in Park City, were you afraid? Because obviously you had a really dramatic experience in 2001. Uh, did that? Did you get a flashback of that? Were you afraid? Because I think I would have been, even though I was in different circumstances. I, the memory would still be there. You would think I would. Um, I was excited. I was very excited for the opportunity. When I finally got up on snow, and I could kind of move a little and I could feel the snow and me sliding on top of it. It was a real rush again to feel that experience and to think, you know what? I may not be standing, but I can still do this activity. Yeah. So in life, you still have goals. Things may happen in your life that knock you down or push you out of that, that direct path you're on. That doesn't mean you can't still have the same goal. You just may have to find a different way to get there. And so it was it was a blast. And I actually was probably kind of dangerous on the hill because I, I would get going down and I wanted to go faster and I wanted to figure out how to cut better and I wasn't good enough at it that I would try and turn because you don't have a lot of trunk muscles in your chest. It's hard to, to manipulate the ski that you're on. And so I would get going fast enough and I'd catch an edge of my ski and I would just start flipping down the hill, rolling and bouncing and bouncing back and forth until I would stop and I'd just kind of slide. And a lot of times I'd be facing downhill. I had a helmet on, luckily. And I'd just have to wait there until a couple of guys came and lifted me back up, set me pointing downhill, tie the rope on again and let's do it once more. Wow, so you got to go to the chairlift and everything then. Yeah, that's that's kind of scary, but yeah, you're just kind of letting other people, yep. for me anyway, I know there's guys who do it by themselves, who are paraplegics, but uh, I was not able to do that. Let's uh, talk about uh, your move to Virginia. Why Virginia? Why not, uh, why not Washington State or Portland, Oregon? Why Virginia? And what made you move over there? We were selling our house and what we were going to build in a different house with just less land. We had three acres and it was just too much for us. And as we were trying to sell the house, my wife and I both realized and we felt kind of prompted that we weren't supposed to rebuild yet. That there was somewhere else we were supposed to go for a short period of time. And uh, once we talked about that on the date one night, all of a sudden, windows just opened up. The Lord blessed us. And within three weeks from that night, we had sold our house, packed up everything, put it in storage, and moved to Virginia. 
within three weeks, we were in Virginia. And it was a crash course deal, but Virginia came up because we started asking everyone, where should we go? Uh, we wanted to go somewhere foreign. We wanted to make it a, a really neat experience for our family, kind of go on a mini mission. But leaving the country was going to be a lot of work for just a year. So we put it out for everyone to tell us where to go, and 90% of the answers we got were Virginia. And most of those were this little town, Charlottesville, Virginia. And we just we didn't have time to think much. We just thought, this is inspiration. Let's do it. And we were there. And it was an amazing experience for our family. Yeah, it sounds like you. That's where you got. Is that where you got your start in speaking? Ultimately, you had a bunch of speaking engagements back there. I understand. I I did do some back there. I I started speaking here probably. Um, I've been speaking for a few years, but I'd only charged people this for me to speak for about a year before we went to Virginia. Um, so I was starting into it, but. What Virginia did for me, for me and as far as my business goes, is it kind of forced me to write and finish my book, Unfrozen. Um, oh yes, great book by the way. I was in a house that I couldn't, I couldn't get out of on my own. It wasn't really wheelchair accessible, so if no one else was around, I was kind of stuck in there to to just sit and do my work, and. Uh, even though sometimes I got frustrating, it it did. It forced me to finish what I what I wanted to get done, and that was finishing this book that uh, I'm very proud of, and I, I think it's helped many people so far. But what a cool experience! We were able to go from take the family to New York City, Washington D.C., the Outer Banks of North Carolina, down to Disney World and Orlando, and everywhere in between. So what a Phenomenal. And then we drove on the way back this summer. We went up and saw most of the church history sites for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and then also uh, saw a few other, you know, neat sites that the country has on the way home. Yeah, I think that uh, sounded like it was a good opportunity. I do want to uh, touch on a couple things here. Uh, first of all, you kind of mentioned your support system. Now, in your book, Zig Ziglar mentioned that your wife was the first thing that he noticed, and she's obviously been a great support. We'll get into that. Um, why do you think Zig Ziglar noticed your wife before anything else? Obviously, there's something about her. I've met your wife. She's definitely a nice person, for sure. Uh, yes, we're at a big big conference and through certain circumstances uh, I, I met his daughter Julie and she invited me and my wife back into his kind of dressing room area and the funny thing is typically if I'm next to somebody I'm the one who gets noticed because I'm in the wheelchair and that's yeah. out. but my wife is stunning she's an amazing lady um, and I agree with you. When, when I'm next to her, I don't think people see me. They they gravitate towards her, her personality, uh, her appearance, everything about her. 
is heads and tails above what I have to offer. So I definitely married up. Yeah, how did you meet your wife? Uh, I know that you were you met her at Rick's College uh, before it was BYU Idaho. What happened there? Well, like most of us, I went into math class and I looked around to figure out if there who's the cutest girl in here, and you know who should I try and ask out on a date. I was a return missionary. I was next thing in line is to try and get married. Uh-huh. So. I saw her, and she looked like she was too popular for me. Everyone knew her. She was, you know, just seemed like she was going to be out of my league. Yeah. I decided I I was getting brave enough to to do some things I didn't do in high school, so I positioned myself in ways that she had to run into me. And I think the one that I finally I caught her on was – I had a vehicle, a four-wheel drive up in Rexburg, and that's, in the winter, that's a very cold, snowy place. And I knew she had to walk about four, four or five blocks to get to her apartment. So after class, I made sure that I had parked my car along the route that she took, and I was getting into my vehicle as she walked by, and I just yelled over, hey, uh, you need a ride? It's cold out here. I can I can take you on a quick ride down there. And she jumped in, and then we became friends. And uh, we dated seriously for one month. We were engaged for a month, and we have been married 19 and a half years now. So, That's pretty good. It worked well for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, most marriages probably don't even last that long these days. There's definitely something to be said to that. And, uh, yes, I agree with you. Your wife is a very amazing person. Just reading the book, uh, you're right. And, uh, like I said, I've met her. Now, do you think when your wife, uh, that day when you drove your wife home, uh, do you think she had any intentions of dating you seriously, or do you think she had a crush on you, or uh, what do you think was happening there? No, I don't think she did at all. I think she was just getting a ride home. Okay. At that point, uh, I know at least I was going through, I don't know, I was wearing cowboy boots and a big flannel jacket, and that's not the kind of person she wanted to date. Um, And she was wearing overalls and uh, type of shoes that I don't really like much, but uh, we realize that we can oversee that stuff and find the things that we really love in each other and that's what you focus on i have to laugh when you say cowboy boots i cannot see you in a cowboy in cowboy attire well that's probably because you can't see kevin (laughs) yeah (laughs) um although i know your brother uh, taylor was into country music quite a bit yeah, he did. I, I love country music. I, I I love the mountains. I love the whole aspect of ranching and all that. But uh, I'm not a I'm not a total hick. I don't wear around Wranglers and um, everything like that. But I I love the country scene. Yeah, uh, I want to go back to something, and then uh, we'll 
talk about uh, another thing and wrap this up. Um, you had a pretty dramatic experience in the hospital. I'm not sure if, if I'm not sure if you were in Utah or where you were. I assume it was probably in either Boise or Bend, where you had the experience of the oxygen, the respirator wasn't working properly, and it was getting hard to breathe. And you uh, prayed real hard, or you you kept having a lot of thoughts going through your mind of whether you want to live or not. And all of a sudden, you had this thought of clicking your tongue, and the nurse came. Why don't uh, go ahead and elaborate on that? Yeah, you're correct. I was actually in, it was in Bend, Oregon. I was in the ICU and I was completely paralyzed. I had a halo on, I had a fever of 104. I couldn't sleep. I had all these wires and tubes stuck into every part of me. And all I could do was blink because I also had a, like you were talking about, I had a ventilator hooked up to my throat. So I couldn't talk. I couldn't breathe on my own. And the machine, the ventilator that was breathing for me, started to malfunction. And so every breath that I was getting was now getting farther and farther apart. And I came to a point that I, I realized that I was probably going to die. I tried to move, I tried to yell, I tried to do anything I could to get someone's attention, but I was unable to do any of that. And so I shut my eyes and I pictured myself kneeling next to my gurney and I said a prayer. And it's like you said, I, I kind of relate it sometimes to a little bit of what Joseph Smith may have gone through when he was in the grove of trees praying to know the truth. He was praying for help. And as I was praying for help, um, it was a, it started off as a very sincere, deep prayer. And then it quickly changed. And I started thinking all these negative thoughts of maybe it would be better if I, if I passed away, maybe it would be better for my kids if they had a father who could pick them up and play with them or it'd be better for Heather if she had a husband who could hold her and protect her. It'd probably be better for everyone because I don't want to be a vegetable. I don't want to lay in a bed the rest of my life and not move. And Joseph Smith went that with Satan came and was overtaking him with all the negativity. And then just in a moment, all of a sudden it shifted and my mind just expanded. You could just feel the light coming in. And I thought, no, I want to live. I want to fight. I want to be there for my wife. I want to be there for my kids. I want to teach my son how to play basketball. I want to see my daughter go on her first date. And reminds me of a Blink-182 song. Yeah, I, did, I want to be that. That's my responsibility. I, they're my kids, this is my wife, and I need to be there for them. And right then the nurse came in and she came over to look at the machines and they weren't working. Or, sorry, let me take that back. She, she pulled out her notebook and she started making things on her chart 
And instead of realizing that it was busted, she just put her chart down and started to walk out of the room. And I had been blinking at her because that's all that I could do. But she didn't really notice it and she started to leave. And right as she was about to open the door, all of a sudden I had this thought to click my tongue to the roof of my mouth, like this. And you can probably barely hear that. And it, I'm sure she couldn't even hear that much. And at first she didn't even notice it. And then she started to open the door and I tried it again. And then she stopped, turned around, and I kept doing it as much as I could. And my mouth was really dry, so it didn't make much of a noise. And she walked back up to the bed and she started staring at me. And I was blinking like crazy and I'm clicking my tongue as fast as I can. And she finally looked down at my chest and realized that I wasn't breathing anymore. And she reached over, turned up the knob on the machine and it filled my lungs with oxygen once again, with life. And that was frustrating for a bit because when she was walking away, I thought, no, this isn't right. You know, in the church, we're always taught, you know, you, you pray, you ask, and then you do everything that you can do, and then the Lord will bless you. And I did that, but she was still walking away. But what do you think? Uh, oh, go ahead. No, it, it, like many times, it doesn't always go the way we want it to go, but then eventually it turns and we realize we have been blessed. And she came back and I, I learned a lot of lessons at, during that experience about prayer, about uh, perseverance, and to not give up and fight to the end. If you believe in something, you have to fight for it. Yeah, why do you think the nurse uh, walked away and it took you to click your tongue to get her attention? Uh, did, did, did you ever find that interesting? Uh, I, I did. I don't know why. Maybe it was happenstance or maybe it was the Lord teaching me that I needed to do more. That it couldn't just be easy that uh, it couldn't just be a simple prayer, but that I needed to do everything in my power. And that's not much. There was nothing else I could do. It's not like I had to climb some big mountain or do some hard task. But I don't know for sure. I, I believe it probably was inspiration because I had never clicked my tongue up to that point. But in a short period of time from her leaving my bed to the door, all of a sudden it hit me and I started to do it. So was it inspiration? Yeah, I, yeah. I, it was. I have no doubt. Now, uh, back to your support system. Of course, uh, you know, the Savior is a good example of support. Uh, what you went through, uh, our Father in Heaven and the Savior. Let's talk about uh, support systems here on Earth. Uh, your family was a great support, but you met somebody that you refer to in your book named Sarah. And what a tragic story. Uh, she was doing, she went through the same 
issues that you did, very similar anyway. Her son ran into, ran a stop sign. I'm not sure what he ran into after that, but ran into a stop sign and caused her to become paralyzed. Then she was doing really good, uh, Sarah. And then she got the bad news that, oh, uh, we have to put you in a nursing home or it's too expensive to get care for you. And not only that, no, that that's the worst thing, but before that her family was distancing themselves from her because what did you say it was a two-hour drive from wherever she lived to the hospital do you know where the hospital was at where she was staying uh i do the hospital was uh um well i don't want to give out too much information but just because i don't want that family to ever feel like you know yeah I yeah okay too much but Yes, I, I know exactly the hospital, because I went to visit her in the hospital uh, yeah. many times. But, uh, yes, it was, a, it was, I think, probably about two and a half hours away from where she lived, roughly. And it yeah, was, no. It's, it would be tough. It would be extremely hard, I think, to be that far away and not have people that you love conveniently be able to come see you and as the story goes which she she had some very severe injuries her son had run that stop uh, sign or and they were hit by a truck and it just crushed their car and their wow. son actually ended up being okay from it but she was paralyzed and had severe injuries, even probably worse than I had. Um, but we saw as we went to visit her and her family would come to see her that she was progressing. She had hope that she would live. You don't know how, how healthy you'll get, but she had hope she would live. And we saw this progress in her, and you could see her smile. And my kids would come sit on the bed. These young little kids would sit on the bed with her, and she could only move one arm, but she could touch them, and they would laugh with her. And that gave her hope. She wanted to be a mom. She still had a couple of kids in her house. She just wanted to live at home again and to be with them. But eventually as they tried to remodel their home and they tried to make things work, her husband told her that they just couldn't do it. It was gonna to be too expensive, it was gonna to be too hard, and the doctors thought that if she stayed in a nursing home, that's where she would get the best help. And that home was about two hours away from her original home. So, again, it would be hard. She would be by herself, and people would have to come visit, and she wouldn't be a part of the family on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think that just, that day that she was told that, I remember vividly watching her health change dramatically. Yeah, to put it bad. To put it very short, it was within a couple of days from when she heard that news that she ended up dying. 
because I believe she gave up hope. That dream, that vision she had in her head of being at home again and to be a part of life and to kind of try and be normal again was gone. And if you lose hope, you can't progress. And if you, if you don't have hope, what do you have? You have nothing. Everything is based off of your hope that something will happen, a hope that someone will be there for you. And so her superior support system just crumbled. Do you think that uh, this uh, Sarah died maybe not so much of health reasons but because of a broken heart? That's what it sounds like to me. I believe that's what put it into motion, yes. Then uh, if you, that broken heart, that broken spirit, uh, then your health can't hardly keep up with it because we lose, she lost a, a, a will to live. And if you lose that, then your body's not gonna, not gonna support you. Yeah, it's interesting how those two work together. As uh, as I read that in your book, it reminded me of the mailbox, the movie. Do you remember the mailbox? It was a church movie. I remember we were talking about that the other day. I didn't at first, but I I do vaguely remember it now. Yeah, for those of you who may not know, the mailbox is a movie that was made. I believe it was in the late seventies. And I remember seeing it as a primary kid. I was uh, five years old. And I just remember feeling really sad. I didn't understand what was going on in the movie. But I just remember feeling really sad. Then I saw it uh, again when I was uh, 13 years old in seventh grade. Interestingly enough, the seventh grade teacher who showed us the movie was not a member of the church. But I know where she got the movie from. It was from the teacher next door. And I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. Um, but it was just really sad. It was started out with this elderly lady and little kid. They were neighbors, and she would always come over every week for cookie day. And the family would drop by to check on her. And uh, Then the elderly lady got this call saying that, uh, talking about her going into assisted living. And what a sick sense of humor But it, the producers had to make this movie. But it drove the point home very well. And the, the movie ended up perfectly, even though it was sad, uh, because the, she, this elderly lady would always go out to check the mail and nothing would come. And then, lo and behold, she got a letter one day but not the letter she was hoping for. It was the letter that uh, she was going to an old folks' home, and she died right there almost immediately after reading the letter. Uh, is that what, kind of what it reminded you of? I know you probably don't remember the mailbox that well, but something similar anyway? Yeah, definitely something similar. Uh, she had lost hope. She had lost that vision of, of belonging that she mattered. Yeah, what a, what a tragedy. And it's very important to have a support system. Now, before we end this podcast, I'd like to ask a question here. What is it about being a member of the LDS Church that you like? Or your favorite thing, I should say. Uh, I think if you, if you were to take out, say, the, the spiritual side of it, you know, having the, the priesthood and the 
the Holy Ghost and all those types of things. What I love the most is just the uh, the people, the friends that I have been blessed to have in my life. Um, in all the different wards we've been in, there's just always been amazing individuals who have taught me and who have supported me and my family. And I think that's part of what it is. If you look back to it, that's that's what the Savior wants. That's what our Heavenly Father wants. He doesn't send angels down to, to support us all the time. Usually when we're blessed, it's because someone else has been inspired to come help us. And I believe constantly every day, it's those individuals that we've been around that they are being guided and directed whether they realize it or not by the spirit to help support and lift others just as the savior would do if he was here himself that's what i that's what i really love to see and to be a part of yeah and the support system has helped me uh stay active in church and along with other things but uh you know there was a time where i wasn't too active but I always had friends that were LDS, and that's not the only reason I became active again, but it certainly helped in the matter. I always managed to maintain friends that were LDS regardless, and I think you're right. The support system goes a long way. You know, you can move anywhere, and this is not a bash on non-LDS people. There's a lot of good LDS people out there. I, one of my best friends is not a member. But uh, you can move anywhere in the country and find LDS people. You may not uh, be in a predominantly LDS place. You might have a small branch. But it's been my experience. You can move anywhere and find uh, good LDS people. No, you bring up a great point. I, I fully believe that you should not, by any means, should all your key people in your life be LDS. No. You should be branching out. I mean, the, it, the Lord didn't go around just only dealing with people who fully believed him and followed him. He was constantly yeah. re reaching and break, uh, branching out and working with anybody. And some of my good friends are not LDS, and they, they have amazing views and ideas that have been so strong and powerful in my life. Yeah. They would do anything for me. So that's the whole thing. There's so many good people out there that are not LDS, and that's how it should be. Yep. And that's why we should have friends, and that's why that's how you do missionary work. Yeah, could you imagine, uh, you know, we talked about missionary work, and, uh, oh, I can't be friends with you because you're not LDS. Defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm glad that uh, you were able to get on the podcast. This time, I'm doing it right. This time, I know how to trim the file and edit it, so uh, we won't have to redo this podcast. I had to redo it today because I messed up yesterday. By the way, real quick, folks, uh, coming up on the podcast on Tuesday, we have Janelle Tobias. Janelle Tobias is a leader, the leader of Women Against Gun Control. Now, she's been on the podcast before. You can go back to previous episodes uh, to a previous episode and listen to it. This time we're going to talk about politics. 
as it relates to the LDS Church. And we're also going to get into Lavoie Finnicum and the Bundys because she was at the trial testifying in Portland, Oregon. So we're going to talk a lot about that. Uh, Nathan, what do you think of the election and the, the Bundys and Lavoie Finnicum and that whole fiasco? Um, the election, I, uh, I, I wish we had better uh, people to vote for. I'm not real impressed with either of the two that we have, at least the two front runners. Um, but I pray for our country, and I, I believe whatever happens, that we'll make it through it. And uh, I have hope in our, our freedom, and that this is a very choice land to be here. So I'm not going to get into a lot of politics because I maybe that's not that's not my expertise. But I do. Well, I would like to say if. For anyone who is uh, struggling with their hope, struggling in pain or depression or anxiety, um, whatever it may be along those lines, that I've been there, I know what it's like. I know what it's like to be physically paralyzed. I know what it's like to be mentally paralyzed and what it's like to struggle out of that. And I believe if, if this... The book Unfrozen that I wrote, if you, you can get it on Amazon, you can go to NathanOgden.com and buy it there, and I'll send you a signed copy. But uh, that there, there are ways to get through it, and I know that you can. That it is absolutely, possible, and that you're stronger than you than you think you are. So yeah, keep with it. And uh, no matter how righteous you are, uh, we can't do it alone as much as we'd like to. Exactly. Uh, uh, well, folks, uh, glad that I uh, hope you enjoyed the podcast, and uh, I'll be out here again on uh, Tuesday. In the meantime, uh, good luck, everyone.